The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. And we're glad you all have joined us for a Wednesday night Bible study on Valentine's Day. I uh, joked with Pastor Clay that I was going to post an advertisement on Facebook, uh, free babysitting. For Awanas, drop them off at 6, pick them up at 8, and go enjoy your Valentine's date night uh, while your kids are here at church. I know, unfortunately, there's a large number who, who did that tonight, and the restaurants are more crowded, more than likely, than the church house. Uh, so looking at those of you who have kids and are in here, uh, thank you. Uh, you are honoring God, uh, first and foremost, which is more important in your marriage than going and enjoying a little date night tonight on this hallmark-created day to make a lot of money. Um, open your Bibles up to Jeremiah chapter 24. My wife's not in here. I can talk freely. Um, although somehow word always gets back to her. I don't know how that happens. Jeremiah 24 this evening. Before we dive into the message tonight, I want to review really quickly again the last four kings of Judah. Uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we walked through these four kings, but just to refresh your minds for some of you, uh, to hopefully enlighten some of you who don't understand what's going on right now uh, within the nation of Israel, the time frame of Jeremiah that we're looking at as we begin reading in chapter 24, even seeing um, that it is in the reign of uh, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. Uh, it's good to fit the writing in its historical context. Um, realize in this day and age, go ahead and put this next slide up for me. In this day and age, there's really two dominant powers that Israel is caught in between. Uh, Babylon and Egypt. Right? The nation and empire of Assyria has already reached its peak and they are sort of wavering in their power. Babylon has crept up in their place. Uh, Assyria, uh, some almost 100 years, a little less than 100 years prior to when we're going to jump into the text here, has come in and taken the northern kingdom of Israel, wiped it out, overtaken that entire territory. They did not conquer Judah, though, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, when Israel was divided in two. And so the northern kingdom has been um, uh, taken over by Assyria for many years by this point, but Judah lasts a little bit longer. And Egypt, when the Assyrians became weak, raised up in power, and the Babylonians, of course, took over Assyria, the Assyrian Empire. They were rising in power, and Israel, the nation of Judah, was sort of caught in the middle as a very weak, um, disheveled nation, group of people that God had not miraculously delivered, that God was actually proclaiming, listen, the Babylonians are going to come and, and wipe this place out. Why? Because of your sin, because of your idolatry, because of your uh, wickedness, the injustices that they were committing in their culture, the judges judging by bribes, the priests and prophets uh, catering to the rich and oppressing the poor. Uh, there was such a disregard for God and his law. God says the Babylonians are going to come as a judgment upon you and really to even work to lead you to repentance so I can even restore you in the future. They're coming. Uh, get ready. And so to trace the mess of the last four kings, five kings even, of uh, Judah, Josiah 
was one of the better kings in this latter portion of Israel's history, Judah's history. There was a revival under his leadership early on. He, he turned to the Lord. There was a, a season of, a, of a, a regard for the law of God. They found the law. They read the law. They repented. There was a, a short-lived revival, but even towards the end of Josiah's life, uh, even Josiah himself, he... the. Pharaoh of Egypt really didn't want to pick a battle with uh, Judah, and he acknowledged even, Necho is his, uh, the title he went by, he acknowledged that the God of Israel is the one true living God, and he said, uh, Josiah, I'm not up to fighting you, and Josiah actually, the text implies, it doesn't say it outright, but he actually disregarded the word of God to go and battle with Egypt anyhow, and it's in that battle with Egypt that Josiah gets wounded mortally, returns back to Jerusalem, and there he dies. And so there's some debate whether he sort of died out of the will of God even, and even died in that way uh, because he disregarded the word of God, as it says in Chronicles. So Josiah dies in battle from Egypt. Jehoahaz, who is his fourth son, is who the people anoint as king after him. He continued this war with Egypt. Um, in the end, it would cost him his life. He died as a captive in Egypt, and Egypt would then set up a puppet king, so to speak, uh, the second of the four sons of Josiah. His name was Jehoiakim. Under Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim was really a puppet king who paid heavy, heavy tribute to Egypt. That was until Babylon overtook Egypt, and eventually in his reign, Babylon defeats Egypt. And so what does Jehoiakim do? He says, hey, 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 I'll, I'll, you know what we were paying to them? We'll pay it to you. And he becomes the puppet king for Babylon, causing a heavy, heavy tax to come upon the people of God. He, he ruled as a puppet king. The people really despised him. Uh, ultimately, there comes a point where he decides to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, against Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and this would be the first invasion of Babylon. They come into Jerusalem, they bring him back captive, they kill him, but they take a number of the finest and best of Jerusalem, of the Jews of Judah, and they bring them back into Babylon, but then they kind of leave Jerusalem operating uh, as it was. There's still a lot of people left in Judah. They didn't totally wipe it out. In this first invasion with Jehoiakim, that is when Daniel, you know the story of Daniel, we'll get to it eventually, Daniel is taken back along with some of the brightest and best into Babylon in that first invasion under Jehoiakim. He died in the siege, one of the siege, uh, sieges. His son, Jehoiakim, uh, is then whom the people appointed as king, but he only lasted a few months, it's like three months, until the siege from Nebuchadnezzar came to an ultimate end. He surrendered to bring that about, and he was actually brought back um, into Babylon. When he surrendered, 10,000 Jews were also taken captive under his surrendering at the end of um, Jehoiakim's, that first invasion. Let me get the timing right. I know I'm, I'm confused here even trying to put it together. So first invasion was about 606, 607. Second invasion would be 598 is when they came in under the second invasion. And that would be right at the end of Jehoiakim. Um, Jehoiakim's reign, Ezekiel, would be one of the ones taken back during that second invasion. But again, 
at that time frame, Jerusalem was not wiped out totally. It wasn't burned to the ground yet, even though God said it's coming, it's going to happen. And what we need to realize as we dive into chapter 24 of Jeremiah is what we've learned about Jeremiah's message to the people all through these, this time frame. Jeremiah is the prophet of God all through these king's reigns. And he has informed the people, especially during this first invasion and afterward, he's warning the people, God has said, give up the fight. God has said, go with the Babylonians as captives. You, you must fall under this judgment of God. But he's warned them. He says, if you go, God will take care of you. And God has promised that even through this captivity, he's going to lead us to a future restoration. And so Jeremiah's word from God was, you need to surrender to this and fall under the chastisement of God and he is a good and gracious God. He has promised to even provide for us there and that was the word of God to the people but many, many, many rejected and said, no, we will stay and fight. And so the warning to them was, if you stay and fight, God will forsake you and you will die and Jerusalem will be burned to the ground. That is what ultimately happens under Zedekiah at the end of his reign uh, the final invasion of Babylon where they come in for one last time, literally burn the city to the ground, knock the walls down, destroy the temple, and only people that are left are the weak, uh, the, the uh, poor, the ones that weren't worth taking back into Babylon to be slaves. All of that to dive into chapter 24 to understand what we're reading here. Jeremiah writes, and he says, chapter 24 and verse 1, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. So, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. So the other thing that makes this really confusing is all of these guys go by like three different names, and so it gets really confusing. Son of Jehoiakim is Jehoiakim, is also Kaniah or Jeconiah, goes by that same name. And so it's right there, this second invasion of Babylon is when we're picking up in the context of the ministry of Jeremiah now. And Jeremiah, after all this is transpiring and going down, God leads him to the temple, and there God shows him these two baskets of figs set there by the temple. Verse 2, one basket had very good figs, like figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten, they were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land, and I will build and, I, and not pull uh, them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as the bag, bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, 
Surely, thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble and all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. The prophets often utilized powerful imagery, some coming from God, some coming from God, moving upon even their creative delivery of the, the judgment and warnings of God that they were preaching and speaking forth. Here it's God who once again, just as God gave that illustration to Jeremiah of the potter and the clay and even of the pots that were being broken as a sign of the judgment that would come upon Judah, God gives him another sign to instruct Jeremiah and through Jeremiah to instruct the people and even through the record recorded for us to instruct you and me tonight about some timeless principles, some truths about God and specifically about obedience and disobedience before God. Some of you who are around my age can remember, I still remember it, the, the whole uh, drug, anti-drug, don't do drug campaign of the 90s, and I think it even went back into the 80s, where how many of you remember this commercial? They'd have the egg, and they'd go, this is your brain, and then they'd crack it in the frying pan, and it'd be sizzling, this is your brain on drugs. It was a vivid picture that I, even all these years later, can remember, even as I thought about this imagery, it reminded me of that just stark contrast between here's one thing and then here's one thing very bad. This is you and your brain not on drugs, something that was normal, and then the, the, the egg baking and, and frying what drugs could actually do to your mind. God gives a very vivid picture here. It's meant to awaken us to the truth of what he's talking about, he gives a very vivid picture of some figs. One basket of figs looked great. You wanted to go eat them. Another basket of figs looked disgusting, and they were so bad you would never eat them. Now, I did not have any figs at the house, but... Oh, wow, that's gross. It's oozing. <laughs> I did have some bananas that I really think that if they had bananas in Israel that God would have used bananas instead of figs just because look at how picture, now that's a beautiful picture. I hope I'm not adding to God's word or changing God's word tonight, but it's fruit, okay? There's a parallel illustration here. I've got some good bananas. I've got some bad bananas. They're not figs, but they, they paint for us just a little bit of the picture that God gave to Jeremiah to deliver to the people. There's a stark contrast, difference. These things are gross. They're oozing out. I did not intend for them to be oozing out, but they are. Um, I'm, I'm going to set them up here so you can... Oh. Um, anybody want to come up and eat the rotten banana? And How much? <laughs> Go back to the youth pastor days and we would really do it. All right. So there's an image for you to look at even as we read and study through this tonight. Come here, Frank. <laughs> even as we study through this so you can picture in your mind 
what God has put before Jeremiah and what Jeremiah is even putting before the people to illustrate the simple truth of the difference between obedience before God and disobedience before God. It's not a complicated message that Jeremiah is delivering. It's actually a very simple, simple truth, but unfortunately we, we lose sight of the simplicity of it as we overcomplicate things with sin in our life, with temptation in our life, with, with living in a fallen world and culture that pulls us away from God at every twist and every turn. This is a, a word for you and me tonight as much as it was for the people in Jeremiah's day. It's a word for my kids and even the teens tonight my goodness the the life that we live before God and a call to be obedient to his word to, to realize tonight that the way that you live matters to God to realize tonight that when God is declared that there's things that we ought to do and things that we ought not to do that there is Things that we ought to watch and think about, and there's really things that we ought not to watch and ought not to be thinking about. That there's words that ought to come out of our mouth, and there's words that ought not to come out of our mouth. That there's ways in which we are to dress, and there's ways in which we're not to dress. Why? Because God is holy, and He says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That, that obedience. In spite of what a world around us wants to make of it, and even a church culture around us wants to belittle it and make it as if it's no big deal, that to God, obedience is a big deal. Two simple principles that, that I want us to see that are illustrated in this text for us tonight. First of all, realize obedience leads to the blessing of God. Right? We, we must obey God even when obedience is hard. Obedience first principle leads to the blessing of God. Verses 4 through 7, first, God explains the good bananas. The good bananas on your right here. The good figs and what they picture in Jeremiah's day. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, like those good bananas, so will I acknowledge, I'll regard the ones who follow my command when I've commanded, remember already it's been commanded, listen, you're not to fight against the Babylonians. This judgment is from the hand of God and God has told them repentance leading to you staying in the land has long passed. You're going to Babylon and you're to willingly go. Go out and lay down and surrender before them and, and I will be with you and I will deliver you even through Babylon. That's what God has already commanded. And he says these good figs are the ones that I acknowledge who are carried away captive from Judah, the ones who went Daniel and Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the others that were uh, going along with them even willingly, many of those that I just mentioned were taken, but the ones that went willingly and said, no, even though you're trying to rally the troops here in Jerusalem to fight, we know Jeremiah is speaking the word of God and we're, we're obeying Jeremiah, we're obeying the word of God. They, they, a few, not many, went out willingly and surrendered. He says, those that go into Babylon, I will acknowledge, I will regard them. Verse 6, I will set my eyes on them for good. 
and I will bring them back to this land. I'm not going to forsake them, even in the land of Babylon, as they follow me, even through this hard act of obedience. I will build them up and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them. And, and then a great, a great promise that's going to unfold even in Jeremiah where, where it speaks of this new heart that will be given, this new covenant that is to come. Really, it's all that we've received in Jesus and the promised Messiah and Redeemer and even a future fulfillment, fulfillment that will happen even for ethnic Israel, I believe, and an end times um, fulfillment. He says, then I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God has told his people, don't, don't fight what I'm doing here even though it's going to be hard, even though you're going to leave your homeland and the promised land that was given to your forefathers I, I, and you're going to go to a foreign nation and you're going to be captives there. You're going to be servants there. God says, trust me, obey me. I'm going to be at work through it and, and I will be with you through it and I will actually do a good work through this that's going to return you to the land. And in, in, the, in due time, God says, you're going to get a new heart. You're going to have a heart that's truly set after me. And I'm going to be your God, and you're truly going to be my people. The good fruit were the ones, the few, that obeyed God and that went. They didn't stay and fight in disobedience to God, but they went to Babylon. There is an example here that even when it seems as if we'll be, we will be worse off for obeying, we are always called to trust and to obey. That even when there's a great pressure to not follow God, as these people would have experienced, the, the call from Zedekiah was to stay and fight. Zedekiah believed, if you remember weeks back even, where um, Jeremiah was dealing with Zedekiah, Zedekiah was asking Jeremiah, surely God's going to deliver us, right? God is going to, like he did for our forefathers, he's going to um, come in the last second and provide a way of escape. And Jeremiah's word is, no, God's told you to go, to surrender. This judgment's sure. God's not going to come and deliver you if you stay. God will destroy you if you stay. These people were facing a great pressure to stay and to fight from the king who was trying to rally the troops, who was trying to save his city and his kingdom against the great nation of Babylon. It was a lot of pressure to, to not go out and surrender. And yet that's what God was calling them to do. And God was saying, if you just obey me, if you just follow me, even in this hard circumstance set before you, God says, I will be with you. I will regard you is the term there. That the blessing of God would be upon them even as they endured the, the, the chastisement of God, even as they were led into Babylon God would be with them as they sought the Lord, as they obeyed the Lord. Obedience leads to the blessing of God, the good fruit. The bad fruit, secondly, verses 8 through 10. The bad bananas, representing disobedience, disobedience leads to the cursings of God. Verse 8. And as the bad bananas, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, and leaving banana goo all over me, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes. And listen to how he refers to the people who were 
remaining hard-hearted in their disobedience and not going into Babylon, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land. <laughs> I do not want to be known as the residue of Trinity Baptist Church who lives a life in disobedience to the Lord. The residue, the residue of Jerusalem who are hard-hearted in their sin, living in disobedience, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt even, those that thought, well, we can flee in safety and try to, to abide under the protect, protection of the Egyptians. He says, I will deliver them to trouble and all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm to be a reproach and a byword, a, a taunt and a curse in all places which I shall drive them. He says, and I'll send the sword and famine and pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Those who didn't obey God and those who stayed to fight Nebuchadnezzar, God gave great warning that their rebellion would work to their demise, that they wouldn't have God's protection. Just the opposite, God would make sure um, that judgment would come upon them, punishment would come upon them because of their rebellious heart. The sword and famine and pestilence and all that we just read would come upon them. You know, this was a promise of God way back when he brought his people into the promised land. He warned them and he said, listen, if you follow me and you regard my law and the ways that I command of you in the promised land, he, he says, I will bless you and establish you in the land. But he warned them even then that if they rejected him, if they turned to the idols of the pagans around them, if they disregarded the law, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36 and 37 says this, The Lord will bring you and the king who you set uh, over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods wood of wood and stone, and you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you. And in that same chapter, Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 through 66, it says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of earth, the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone, and among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. Disobedience before God would lead to a curse of God, would lead to their demise, their destruction. Obedience before God would lead to the blessing of God, the favor of God, the regard of God, even as they were led into Babylon. You realize tonight that sin always, always works out for your demise. Demise meaning you're bad, not you're good. Like sin will always have consequences. Sin, disobedience before God. Some people have a hard time defining what sin is. Sin is that which is against God, that which is contrary to to his righteousness, to what he has declared as right in our living, is right in our life. Sin, to transgress, to miss the mark of God's righteousness, to disobey him, sin has great consequence. And no matter how much you think it will be better, it's never better than obedience. 
You see, Zedekiah and the people in Jerusalem who were tempted to stay and fight and disregard God, in their mind, they were thinking it would be far better for us to fight. We can win. Maybe even God will come and defend us. We can remain in our homeland. We can live the lives we're currently living. It would surely be worse for us to surrender and go to Babylon. You realize sin would not be a temptation if there wasn't an appeal to it. The appeal of sin is that we think we will be better off for doing it than than not doing it. No one would ever do anything wrong if we really thought rationally and realized God is God and God knows what's best. What happens in the moment of temptation is we think in the the short-sightedness of the circumstance that we're caught in, we believe in that moment we will be better for disregarding God in pursuing disobedience than we would be if we would just follow the ways of God. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden, is it not? That in that momentary lapse of reasoning, Adam and Eve both were were deceived and believed that they would be better disobeying God and eating of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Lucifer was able to convince them of that. You know, God's, God's just out to keep you from what is best was the temptation in the garden. And you realize that's not any different than the temptation that faces us every day in a culture that surrounds us? That's not any different than the temptation every man faces who's thinking about adultery. They, they think, well, this is going to be better. It's better than the mess of what I'm caught in right now. I, I'll be happier for it. I, it'll bring a greater you know, contentment down the road. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? No, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Remember that. That's a good saying. Not original to me. He doesn't want you to be happy. God has commanded for us to be holy. And as you pursue holiness, what you find is that joy comes. It is greater than happiness. Happiness is momentary and fleeting, but the joy of the Lord, it abides even through the griefs and sorrows and struggles of this life. To have a marriage filled with the joy of Christ, not an emotional lust, is honestly what some people crave more than what God has designed in marriage. Sin never works out for the better, but we think it does. And we're deceived in the moment. And so in that moment of temptation, that moment of of being unreasonable, it's not reasonable that that we would believe that God who is God, who is such a God of love and grace and mercy, would, would truly be commanding something of us that is bad, that keeps us from what's best. You do understand that tonight, right? The commands of God don't hold you back from what is best. The commands of God actually keep you in the pathway of what is best for human flourishing as even a culture for for individual fulfillment god's ways are best i remember a little cartoon comic strip that i saw many years ago i've shared it with you once and i want to share it with you again tonight because i want it to stick in your mind as it's stuck into mind This is such a great little illustration that's drawn here that brings to light the foolishness of how so many people regard God's word and God's commands. The the first image there, if you can read it, the fence there is entitled God's commands, and the guy jumping over the fence says, I hate being confined by this fence. I'm jumping over it. So many people view the commands of God in that light. They think 
the, the, what God commands about how we ought to live, about how you ought to date, about how you ought to marry and live as husband and wife and treat one another within a godly marriage, about what you're not to go out and be doing and about what you are to be going out and doing. So many people look at that as restrictive. And they think it's confining. They think it's oppressive even, that the Christian faith and Christian morality just oppresses our self-individuality and self-expression of who I want to be and who I think I am. And the reality is that, like the second image shows, the guy sitting there saying, wait, no, it's, it's not a fence. It's actually a guardrail. And on the other side of it is this cliff that's going to lead you down to your death. That is such a perfect picture that goes hand in hand with, with some rotten bananas and some good bananas. That the rotten fruit undoubtedly even pictures in the, the, the bruising and in the decay of it the effects of disobedience. That, that what we think in our fallenness is oppressive and restrictive is actually the grace of God to keep us to keep us as good fruit, to keep us whole and healthy in life, in, in our personhood even of who we are and who He's created us to be. And when we jump over the guardrails, what, we end up, what ends up happening is we start looking like that because we're falling off the cliffs that we were never designed to, to, to jump over. Satan is deceived and perverted and twisted all the good things that God has designed, especially human sexuality and sexual intimacy. Like that is a good gift of God that he designed man and woman in the context of a marriage relationship and yet Satan twists it and we have fornication and we have adultery and we have homosexuality and all the rest of sexual sin that would go along in that same line of the perversions of, of God's good design. And within the good design, it's, it's whole and healthy and good. But what happens when you get out of God's design is, is it ends up it ends up scarring and marring and destroying a person. And it ultimately leads to death, even eternal death. I don't believe I'm pressing that illustration that God gives here of the good figs and the bad figs to make this point. I think it's clearly being illustrated. that The disobedience before God works to our demise, to our destruction that it bruises and destroys you. But obedience before God, even in the hard circumstances that we face, when we obey, it, it, it keeps us whole, it keeps us well. It glorifies God, but what's best for God's glory is also good for us. Don't, don't think those go opposite of one another. The, that goes hand in hand, God's glory and our even flourishing in him and in our our wholeness in him they go hand in hand sin always works out to our demise how you live matters how you talk matters how you dress matters the places you go matters and don't go matters the things you listen to matters the things you watch matters i remember this song that Grew up singing as a kid in children's church, and the title of the message tonight even is obedience, but it's O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, -E -E. and some of you are laughing, you know that one. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. 
The, the verse to that song was, we want to live pure, we want to live clean, we want to do our best, sweetly submitting to authority, leaving to God the rest, walking in the light and keeping our attitudes right on the narrow way. For if you believe the word you receive, you always will obey. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe, doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately, the joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. That, of course, is taken from the words of Christ in John chapter 14 and verse 15, where he says, if you love me, here's your Valentine's Day message for tonight. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you really love God, you will follow his word and his way. And as you follow his word and his way, you find that his word is good. You find that his word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And you find that the more by his grace that you're constrained by his word, the more you're actually blessed by his word and his way. And the more of a fulfilled life that you truly live in spite of the difficulty of the circumstances of life to follow the Lord in obedience to him in your life in your marriage in, in your retirement whatever context of life each and every one of us are in right now as you follow the Lord in it what you find is there's the blessing of God and what I have seen in the lives of others portrayed so vividly unfortunately when you disobey God it works to make you look like that. How many of you, some of you may be in a situation where you're kind of like that actually, but, but all of us know people, you go back to high school and back to college and you think about the people that were, were not following the ways of God. And they were partying it up, they were living it up, they were having all the fun, so to speak, for the short time because there is a pleasure of sin that lasts for a season, but it's only for a season. And I look at some of the guys that I knew that were living that way, and, and if I were to say, what does their life look like today? What does their marriage look like today? It's actually their third or fourth or fifth marriage or, or no marriage even anymore. It doesn't look like this. It looks a whole lot more like that. And you all know that's true. And if we wanted to not point fingers at others, but point fingers at our own hearts, we know in our own lives there's times that we fall out of the will of God and out of obedience to God, and we end up looking a lot more like that scarred and marred and bruised banana than we do the healthy, whole, well banana. He who keeps the commandments keeps his soul. But he who is careless of his ways will die, Proverbs 19 and verse 16. 1 John 5 and 3, paralleling the words of Jesus in John 14, John writes, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But what God wants of you in your life, it's not a burdensome thing that will prevent you from what is best. It's actually a good thing, a thing that will lead to your prosperity to your blessing the closing question as we come to a time of invitation in just a moment is are you living in obedience to God right now tonight it's a call to examination in your own marriage for those of you who are married in your own lives individually for all of us that if you were to say all right God I stand as an open book before you because you do right you know that God knows it all Ain't nothing that God doesn't know. I don't know at all. I can't tell you which one you're more like and how much is there bruised, scarred junk from your 
disobedience that is making you look like that side and not this side? God knows. God sees it. Are you living in obedience to God? Is there any area of disobedience that you need to confess? That you need to get right with the Lord tonight? That you need to get right with a spouse tonight? That you need to get right with a brother or sister in Christ tonight? Closing word of comfort before we pray and Pastor Scott comes to lead us in a song of invitation. Micah chapter 7, Old Testament. I'm going to stick to the Old Testament in closing. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Pardoning sin. And passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. That the God that we know, the God that gave Jesus to die upon a cross for us, isn't a God who delights in bringing destruction upon you because of your sin. He's actually a God who delights in showing his mercy. He delights in showing his forgiveness. It says in verse 19, he again will have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What a beautiful picture of the forgiving heart of God. If you only turn to Him and repent, confess, God can take your sins and He delights in casting them into the depths of the sea. And what we know this side of the cross is He delights in pouring them into the, the depths of Christ's blood that was shed for you that Christ atones for every sin. If you're here tonight and there is disobedience in your life, you need to get that settled. And I encourage you, turn to God even in this invitation and just pray, God, forgive me. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for Jesus who died upon a cross for me, was buried and raised again. Lord, help me to stand against temptation. Help me to restore even the things that are bad in my life because of my sin and God delights in restoration God delights in mercy you find he is a God who casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea heavenly father we come to you and lord we thank you for who you are Lord, who is a God like you pardoning our iniquities Lord, there is no God like you you are the one and only true God Lord, there's not even a fictitious God that's been created by humanity that's like you. All of our created gods demand that we make up for our sins, demand that we prove our value and worth, that by religion we earn, earn our salvation. But Lord, you, the true living God, have done it all for us. You have given Christ. You have provided the only way through Jesus dying upon a cross for us because you're a God who delights in mercy. You're a God who delights in forgiving sinners. Lord, help us to not be so foolish that we would continue in sin in the face of such a loving God because destruction awaits those who do. Uh, Lord, help us as believers to follow you, to obey you in all things. Lord, I pray if there's any believer here living in sin that you would convict them, that they would confess and afresh and anew. I just find a restoration in the, the forgiveness that comes to them in Christ. 
Lord, if there be any in here that have never turned to you, I pray that they would now, Lord, repent and believe for the very first time and find that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Lord, I ask all of this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen.